Would you pray with me? Lord, thank you for your word this morning. Thank you for meeting us as we worship. Jesus, pray that uh, as we would look at your word, that you would open our hearts and that my words would be your words, Lord, for your people in your name. Amen. All right, we are continuing our series through the book of Revelation. Brian, you can probably go to that next slide. Here's what we've, we've covered so far. So chapter 1 was the opening. Chapters 2 and 3 are the letters to the seven churches. And we just wrapped up the letters uh, last week. And if you remember, you can go to the next slide, Brian. The opening, it's written by John. It's in this apocalypse genre. We find a series of symbolic visions. They're full of Old Testament images and themes, emphasizing God's plan and purposes in human history in light of Jesus' victory on the cross, which gives hope to Christians facing persecution. I love that we sang about the victor's crown this morning. That revelation is full of proclaiming the victory of Jesus and what that means for human history, especially for those who are going through suffering. Then the letters to the seven churches, again, written to real congregations and real situations, calling them to faithfulness and repentance and so on. And now Jesus summons John into heaven in verse 4, and he's going to discover God's plans and purposes to bring uh, his plan of redemption to pass in human history through Jesus' victory. And so we get to this, chapter 4, the glory of God. And this is really about the throne and the scroll and the Lamb. And there's a couple things to note here. It opens with God on his throne and surrounded in majesty and wonder and splendor and power. It's, it's very much like the scenes we get in Isaiah and Ezekiel where the prophet is sort of brought into God's presence upon his throne, and it's, it's impossible to really describe him. John uses all sorts of light and color, but there's no sort of precise descriptions because how could you describe him? It's sort of like human language has kind of hit a limit, and so we're just sort of we're using these words to try and express the, the sheer glory and awesome presence of Yahweh. And then we have the 24 elders and lots of people think this symbolizes the unity of God's people. You have 12, uh, the tribal leaders from the Old Testament, and then the 12 apostles of the New Testament. And so 24 being kind of the fullness of the people of God. And they're continually worshiping the Lord. We've got lightning and rumbling and thunder surrounding the throne, which reminds us of a scene from Exodus that we went through this summer. This is very much like Mount Sinai, right? When God's presence descends and there's sort of this violent shaking and the thunder and the loudness and the glory and the splendor of God. And here we see that again in the throne room. There's other details as well. We get the sea of glass appearing here in God's throne room. Often the sea of glass is, is thought of sort of as a symbol in ancient Near Eastern cultures as sort of the throne of heaven. And, you know, you can kind of, it's sort of the ceiling of the created universe and there's sort of a transparency to it, so you can kind of see the peace of heaven and the turmoil of earth. But in other places in the Bible, and we talked about this especially when we were doing our Exodus series, is sometimes water is almost a symbol of sort of primordial evil chaos. And now, where's the water in God's presence? It's not overwhelming. It's not taking over things. God has got it in check. It is held and kept, it's permitted, 
but only for a time, and it's contained. Whatever sort of forces of evil may exist, we realize in God's presence there's this picture of the fact that God has got it. It's not just allowed to run rampant through his world. He will see it through. And, of course, when we get to the end of Revelation, what do we see? There's this great line, there's no more sea. Not necessarily there's no oceans in the new creation, but that, that, that evil chaos, that primordial evil that seeks to undo God's creation, which is personified in the dragon and in the serpent, is now removed forever. And so God is keeping evil at bay. It is not allowed to sort of run rampant. We also get the living creatures full of eyes in front and behind, very much like the cherubim and seraphim from Isaiah and Ezekiel again. And yet there's variation. Some of the features are sort of blended together. And we realize, again, these are, these are symbols that John is using to describe what is really sort of unseen realities. It's hard to really put words to this, right? But it's clear what they do. These are angelic attendants, Um, Some would say it's like they represent all of creation. There's features of creation in them. But their job is to offer ceaseless praise to God. That's their job. That God alone, in his infinite holiness and power and life, he alone is the one who is worthy. He alone is holy, holy, holy. And so this whole scene, the majesty of the throne the echoes of Isaiah and Ezekiel, it all underscores this major theme. God alone is worthy. God alone is worthy. He has created all things, verse 11, and all things uh, existed and were created by his will. So chapter 4, again, a lot of, lot of imagery describing the scene before God, but John being sort of taken up. And remember we talked about apocalypse genre as sort of... Uh, God showing a picture behind the scenes. It's almost like pulling back the curtain to see what's really going on in the world. And I want to just make a note here this morning is that this vision of heaven, this is not sort of the future final heaven where God and humanity are dwelling together. This is not ultimate heaven, as you might say. But John is looking behind the veil into heaven in this present moment, at the present reality. He's invited like the prophets before him, into God's throne room in order to report back to God's people what he's seen and what he's heard and to tell them, here's what's truly going on. Now, remember, the letters to the seven churches had a lot to do with issues in the churches, a lot to do with persecution in those churches, some of them. Some of them were dealing with their own sort of spiritual apathy and their own sort of internal stuff. But for a lot of those churches, as persecution was increasing, it would look like Rome was winning. Or if you think back to the Old Testament, the people of God, it would look so often that Babylon was winning. And it may look today, folks, that evil is winning. Sometimes it looks like corruption in our world is winning, doesn't it? Sometimes you look around and go, it's getting worse. It's not getting better. But Revelation 4 peels back the curtain and says, look, even in the midst of whatever issues you see in the world, whatever evil is maybe allowed and permitted for a time, God is still on the throne. And he alone is holy, holy, holy. He alone. 
And that's the life-giving message for us from this first chapter. The sea that can seem to ravage us today, folks, is actually contained in his presence. Jesus knows what's going on in your life. He knows what's happening. He knows what might seem like turmoil in your life. But he is holding you. He will hold you. He longs to hold you in the midst of that. And in him we can faithfully live whatever might happen. And we can anticipate his return in light of the victory of the cross. I know sometimes when we're going through messy and confusing issues, maybe messy and threatening issues in our own lives, it is easy to give up hope. It can be a a matter of saying, where is God in all of this? And you know, that was the same sort of sentiment that these, these churches were facing. Where is God? The world has gotten worse. The earthquakes are happening. (laughs) There was all sorts of diseases. This is before there's any sort of antibacterial anything, right? Disease ran rampant. It was commonplace. And here's these churches struggling to follow Jesus, to understand what does that mean in a world that seems so broken and so full of evil and chaos. And we still face that too. Not to the same degree, perhaps, but we still face that. And I just want to say this morning, whatever sort of struggle you may be going through or anxieties you may be going through or temptations you are facing, the things that happen in the lives of ordinary Christians everywhere, God is still sovereign. He is still on the throne. And this is what John sees in the midst of all of this stuff that Jesus is addressing in the churches He gets the curtain pulled back and sees God is still on the throne. He's still holy. He's still worthy. And he'll see us through. So I want you to just take a moment and think about one situation in your life. What's one situation in your life right now that could seem overwhelming? And maybe your just perfect life is just brilliant. You you have no worries at all. Maybe. This is not me. (laughs) I'm always, there's always something to be worried about in my life. Maybe you don't suffer with that. But think of one issue, or maybe it's something in your family life. Maybe there's a medical situation that you're waiting on, or there's a broken relationship, or there's financial issues that you're working through, or maybe you suffer with some sort of mental health problem. That's okay if you do. Or maybe there's depression, or maybe there's fear or anxiety about something. I want you to think about that moment, that, that issue, whatever that is. And I want you to place yourself with John there before the throne. And know that you can give that thing over to God. He is good. He loves you. He is on the throne. And that thing, which is very real, we're not minimizing that thing. But let's put it in its proper context that it is a small thing that we can give to Jesus because of who he is, because of what he's done on the cross, and because of his great love for you. Rather than holding that thing to ourselves full of fear, let's give that over to him. He's on the throne. He's on the throne. And Hebrews tells us that because Jesus is our high priest, we can come boldly to the throne of grace 
and obtain mercy and help in our time of need. I don't know about you, but there's times I'm in need. I need to be reminded I can come now before this throne and receive mercy and grace. I'm not downplaying the real needs in our lives because they're real. They're real. But let's not also downplay the reality of God sovereign on his throne. That that is the truth. And we are his children. We can come before him in our need and find grace and help for today. Amen? It's really good. Let's go to the next slide, Brian. Chapter 5 then opens with this question, this issue of who's worthy to open this scroll. There's this turn. So in verse 1, we see in the right hand of him seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. It echoes, again, scenes from Ezekiel and Isaiah and Daniel. In Ezekiel, there's a scroll that is full of woe and lamentation. In Isaiah, he can't actually read the scroll. In Daniel, he's told to keep it sealed. We're not going to open it. But the fact that it's got writing on both sides, it's like it, it resembles a Roman will or an inheritance document, and it's sealed up. It has, it has commands in it that are ready to be executed. There's, you know, you know when you ha- someone has passed away, there's the will. You need the executor to sort of enact the will, right? They're the one that brings the will to pass, as it might be. Most significantly, this is a picture of God's purposes for human history. God's enactment of what he is going to bring to pass, and it's sealed. It can't be opened. Who's going to open it? And in verse 2, there's a mighty angel that says, uh, who is worthy to open the scroll and to break the seals? And no one is worthy. No one in heaven or on earth or under the earth can open it. None of the servants of God that we've been introduced to, not the elders, right? Not the living creatures. They can't open the scroll. No one has the sufficient authority to unveil and to enact God's purposes God's redemptive purposes for his world. The scrolls, it's like an like a, a architect and a blueprint. Right? It points to the fact that God has a purpose to bring uh, to pass for his creation. God has a plan and a purpose here that he is bringing to fruition. But who is going to bring this world-rescuing project to pass? Who can do it? None of us can do it because we're part of the problem. We're part of what needs saving. Who's going to do it? John starts weeping. God commits himself in Genesis 1 and 2 to work with his creation through obedient humankind. He's, God's kind of wound that right into the fabric of creation. And then when Adam and Eve fall and there's this ongoing travesty of human, human beings failing, there becomes the call to work with one family, with Israel, with an obedient humanity to bring God's purposes to pass, but Israel too fails. But God has made the plan in such a way that if he's going to rescue the world, he wants to do it through humanity and through Israel, but we've all failed. And then Israel fails. So we need a faithful human who is also a faithful Israelite to bring God's purposes to pass. And John starts to weep. 
He's weeping because the hope of the seven churches is in jeopardy. If God isn't going to bring his purposes to pass, if there's no one to execute that, then we're all hooped. And there's this dramatic pause. Who's going to open this? And then we discover one who can. You can go to the next slide, Brian. The rest of chapter 5 is about the one who is worthy. Now, I want you to pay attention to this. John hears in verse 5, One of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Now, the lion of the tribe of Judah, or as Rowan would say, the tribe of Judy, the lion of the tribe of Judy. This echoes Jacob's blessings back in Genesis. This idea that from Judah's line will come a ruler, this sort of denotation of military victory and power. But Isaiah later prophesied a coming king, a Messiah, who would be like a branch springing up from the line of David. And so the line of Judah is also the root of Jesse. He's the source of David's rule, but he's also the branch. He's the, he's the coming king from David's line. And so what the angel is saying is, look, the Old Testament promises of the conquering lion have come to pass. This one who's going to fulfill all of, all of the ancient prophecies and hopes of Israel, this lion has come and he's won the victory And that makes him worthy to open the seal. That's what John hears. But then John sees in verse 6. And N.T. Wright calls this one of the decisive moments in all of Scripture. John hears the announcement of the lion. But then he turns and what does he see? The startling fulfillment. It's not a lion. It's a slain lamb. And that seems radically different, doesn't it? Because the lion is sort of this picture of power and royalty, and the lamb is like vulnerability and sacrifice and weakness. But now those two images are meant to be blended together. The way of the lion of Judah, the descendant of David, the true king, the way he conquers is not going to be through military conquest, but by laying down his life for his enemies. And so the lion has become a lamb where he gives himself a sacrifice. He's the suffering servant right out of Isaiah. He's the king who dies for his people. And all the images and language of Exodus and Deuteronomy and Numbers and all all of the practices of sacrifice and atonement all come rushing together because this lamb is now not a dead atoning sacrifice. He's killed, but he's alive forevermore. And his victory has come by defeating the true power of evil, the power of sin and death that holds us. This echoes with Isaiah 53, right? That great passage that many of us are familiar with. Surely he's borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. We esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. I think of John chapter 1. The next day, John the Baptist was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. And the two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. First Peter says, 
that lamb sacrifice applies to each and every one of us. He says, you were ransomed from futile ways with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Folks, that victory won by the Lion of Judah is accomplished through the sacrifice of the Lamb. And that alone makes Jesus worthy to open the scroll. He's obedient, faithful humanity, but he's also been obedient and faithful Israel. And he's conquered over the forces of corruption and death, over everything that would seek to undo God's creation and God's purposes and to bring about God's redemption. He's the faithful Adam, the faithful human, faithful Israel, and he alone is worthy. And the creatures and the elders fall down in worship, and we read it's a new song, verses 9 and 10. Worthy are you to take the scroll, to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You've made them a kingdom and priests to our God. Where did you hear that before? That's Exodus language, right? John is glimpsing the heart of the Christian faith, the lion, lamb, Israel's Messiah, the true man, Jesus, actually now shares in the worship of none other than the creator God. And we get this amazing moment in verse 13. I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea, all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, the blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. You can go to that last slide, Brian, or that lion slide. Jesus is alone worthy to bring God's mission forward. He's faithful humanity. He's from the line of David. He's defeated sin and evil through his atoning death and resurrection. And he alone and bring God's plans to completion. And he starts to open the sealed scroll. We'll get there next week. But this is the message, folks, of Revelation 4 and 5. We don't need to fear. We can have great hope. Not only is God sovereign on his throne in the midst of the issues we face in our world today, but there is one who is worthy, who has conquered the evil in our world, and will see God's purposes through in your life, in my life, and in this world that he loves. He alone is worthy. The lion who is the lamb, who is Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, I thank you that you came to see your creation come to its fullness, Lord. You came that none would perish but that all who repent and believe would find eternal life in you. And Lord, I thank you that you are alive today, that you are on the throne, and that in you, Lord, we can find hope for our future in the midst of our brokenness, in the midst of our struggles. We know that you have conquered, you have overcome the grave, and we can find rest and hope in you even as we go through issues in our own lives. Lord, we know that you are sovereign. And this morning as we come to this table, this is an act of saying you alone, Jesus, are good. You alone are worthy. We trust in you today.
In your name, amen.